Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Last week, we wrapped up a series called Upside Down Kingdom. Today, we're beginning a new series. Uh, It's going to take us through the Christmas season. We're calling it More Than a Song. Everybody say, More Than a Song. All right, you're excited. Uh, I, remember, I remember as a kid growing up in a, a small town in South Georgia. Uh, I, I won't go into the denomination that I grew up in. Uh, there aren't many of them around here, but they kind of dominated the South at the time. Uh, and this is back in the 90s. Uh, and the religious atmosphere uh, in the area where we grow up, grew up was just very kind of rich, uh, ritualistic, very traditional. Uh, there was really an opposition to anything that didn't just mold to the status quo. Uh, anything, any different, there was resistance to it. So I was probably 12 or 13 years old when we left this denomination and we went to a non-denominational charismatic church plant up the road. Now in the 90s in South Georgia, Non-denominational charismatic church was another way of saying probably a cult. And (laughs) I wish that were an exaggeration, uh, but uh, it was for things like not preaching from the old King James version of the Bible, so you're obviously a cult, things like that. Uh, I do actually put it in my notes to make sure I said it was not a cult. I didn't want to forget to say that. Uh, But I remember even as a kid walking into this new church, Uh, And as a 12 or 13 year old, I still remember I had two initial thoughts. My first thought was, people are excited to be here. What is going on? Uh, In all of my life, I had never been to a church where anyone was excited to go to church. I didn't even know it existed. And as a kid, it felt kind of sinful, like something is wrong here. Uh, Now I look back and I think, you know, that... I I think that is an indicator of a healthy church. Uh, I hope that you never feel obligated to come to church here. I want you to be excited. I'm excited to be here every week. The second thing that I remember noticing was, what is this music? These are not the hymns that I grew up on. They were singing, shout to the Lord, celebrate Jesus, celebrate, shine Jesus, sign, or as we called it, heathen music. How many of you can recall when you began going to a church that didn't primarily sing hymns? How many of you, this is that church? (laughs) Quite a few. Well, we welcome you. Uh, I would actually like to let you know I love hymns. Uh, And usually if I request a song from Renee, it's usually a hymn that I'm requesting. Now, I love contemporary worship music as well. But what I love about hymns uh, is there is like this uh, deep theological substance to them. There are biblical truths ingrained in the hymns. And there has been this movement in Christianity over the last 15 or 20 years to mass produce as many catchy Christian songs as we can. And it's come often at the expense of depth. Uh, Even at times it's come at the expense of biblical accuracy. Now this isn't meant to be a a sweeping statement, but uh, I don't know if anyone else has seen this. Uh, There are songs that uh, even have become intrinsically focused. We call them worship songs, but we're actually singing about ourselves. Now, this is one of the reasons 
that many people today still find it so much easier to engage in worship in hymns because uh, we trust what the hymns are saying. We know that there is so much depth and so much truth within them. And, and as I was studying for, for this series, do you know where we find some of the greatest theolo theological depth and substance in Christian music? It's in those Christmas songs that we sing every year, but only in December. It's in those Christmas songs that we've been singing since we were children, so uh, we kind of just sing the words. And, and, and it, for most of us, I would say there's a distinct separation between Christmas music and worship music. Uh, it's just kind of, uh, it, it comes with a territory when you've been singing it uh, at the Christmas time. And to be specific, obviously, these are songs about Jesus, not Santa Claus. So there's no theological depth <laughs> in those. But uh, even this morning in worship and, and occasionally in worship, what you'll find is if we begin with a Christmas song, sometimes as we transition out of the Christmas song and into a worship song, it's like there's a tangible change in the atmosphere of the room. Uh, it, it's like we have this, this idea that, okay, I'm coming out of the Christmas song into a worship song. Now I can engage in worship. Uh, for some of us, this takes place when we move into a hymn. It's this idea that we would probably never say out loud, but it's this idea of, okay, now we're going into a hymn. Now I can engage in worship. And even this morning, sometimes you can feel a tangible change in the spiritual atmosphere of the room. Now, how do you explain this? Actually, it's really simple because the Bible says that the God we serve inhabits the praises of his people. What that means is as worship moves from words on our lips to an action and a posture in our heart, the presence of God is drawn to worship. The presence of God is drawn to genuine, heartfelt worship. One of my favorite series that we have ever done as a church was based on a book called The Irresistible Church. And the premise of the book is just that, how to be a church that is irresistible. Only it's not irresistible to people, not irresistible to the consumer, but irresistible to the Spirit of God. It's a church that, that, that worships God so openly, that worships God so wholeheartedly and seeks Him fervently and, and passionately, wholeheartedly that the presence of God is drawn to that place. Now, what does it look like to worship God with your whole heart? And that's the thing. Externally, there's not a one size fits all. Some people worship God with their hands lifted. It doesn't mean if your hands are not lifted, you're worshiping God any less. Some people worship God by dancing. You will never see your pastor dance. I'm going to tell you a true story. My high school prom, first time I ever danced in public, first song my date said to me, stop kidding around. <laughs> Never again. That is a true story, scarred for life. Worship looks different externally. There's not a mold that we're all supposed to fit. Worship is about the posture of your heart. It's about connecting with God, exalting Him, and recognizing Him for who He is, His faithfulness and His goodness. Uh, Psalm 29.2 says this, this is basically what worship is. When we ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. 
whatever it looks like for you externally to engage in worship. We want to be a church full of people who can do it, whether it's a Christmas song, a contemporary worship song, whether it's a hymn, that it's not about the style of music, it's about the posture of our heart that arrives here and says, I'm here to exalt God and give Him the glory that's due to Him, to worship Him from a place of heartfelt worship. And my hope behind this series is that we can dive into some of these Christmas songs that we sing this time of year and extract some of that spiritual depth behind them and see that these are not Christmas carols so much as songs of worship songs of thanksgiving, songs of, of, of praise and celebration. And I'm going to begin today with a song that you've heard hundreds of times. Some of you have sung, sung it hundreds of times. Everybody has sung it once because we did it this morning. It's Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now this song was written by Charles Wesley in the 1700s. Charles Wesley is uh, the brother of John Wesley. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. Uh, this was one of them, and he wrote them for a specific reason. This is really interesting. In, the, in England in the 1700s, it's estimated that the literacy rate, uh, those who could read and write, was around 30%. So what Charles Wesley did, rather than trying to get you to memorize a passage of Scripture, is he wrote hymns so that they would be easier for people to remember. And what he did was he put the doctrine, the biblical theology, in the hymn. And Hark the Herald Angels Sing was one of those hymns that was written for those who couldn't read, and read the Bible on their own. So we know most of the words, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Uh, some of the other ones, Greg, I think I have them there. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. There is so, so much depth in theology. You can go into that. And Charles Wesley said, I'm going to put it in song. If you actually read all four of these lines, they're basically saying the same thing. God became man. God became man. God became man. Jesus was God becoming man. He's getting it into their minds. This is the Christmas story. Is God becoming man? Uh, another verse I really like. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Uh, simply that one line, mild he lay his glory by. Uh, we read last week in Philippians chapter 2 uh, when he said that Jesus uh, was in the very nature of God, but he laid all of that aside. In other words, he laid his glory by to become man, to walk among us. And rather than asking them to memorize passages of Scripture, he put it in song. But this morning, there's actually just a single line from the song that I want to dive into it's right after he writes, Peace on earth and mercy mild. Anyone want to finish it for me? This is the most excited I have ever seen this church <laughs> in my life. God and sinners reconciled. Christmas is a time to recognize and to remember it is the season where God and sinners were reconciled. In uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this, chapter 5. He said, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself 
through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? He tells us in verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting the people's sins against them. There's a few things to know about reconciliation that took place in Christ. I remember in that new church, this isn't my notes, I remember in that new church we went to, one specific Sunday that I went and the preacher got up and he said, I have 10 points to get through this morning and my head just dropped because you never want to hear a preacher say he's got 10 points. So I only have five and I'm going to get through them really fast for you, okay? Uh, the first thing that we need to know about the reconciliation that took place in Christ is it was necessary. The reconciliation that took place in Christ was necessary. Now, uh, there are only a few things in all of human history that have taken place that affected all of human history. If you think in your life of the most impactful thing to ever take place in your life, it didn't affect all of humanity. I'm sorry if that's a shock to you. It didn't affect all of humanity. There are wars that affected and devastated millions and millions of people that didn't affect every human on the earth. If the stock market crashes today, it doesn't affect every human on the earth. That distinction falls to only a few events in all of history, and unfortunately, one of those events was the fall of mankind. Uh, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey, uh, their relationship with God, this relationship of perfect harmony, was broken in such a way that it affected every human being on the face of the earth. Sin became, became a human condition. And because God is so holy and so righteous and so perfect, He could no longer walk in perfect harmony with sinful humanity. There had to be a, a mediator for things to ever be right between God and man a reconciliation would have to take place. When brokenness, I think I have this as a note there, uh, Greg, when brokenness became a reality, reconciliation became a necessity. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Paul very often used legal language, the language of the law, when he wrote, uh, when he wrote things like condemnation. Uh, we don't live in condemnation. It's a legal term. Uh, condemnation means you've been sentenced to hell, legally sentenced to hell. But we've been justified, another legal term that means you have been declared legally righteous and innocent. But when Paul uses this term, reconciliation, he doesn't use a legal term. He uses actually an accounting term. So if you've ever reconciled your bank account, you know that what you are doing is you're giving account to every transaction. You're making sure that every transaction in your bank account is now accounted for, including every debt you owe. Now, the, the sacrificial system... Well, let, let's start with this. What debt do we owe? Because Romans 6.23 kind of tells us the problem. The debt we owe for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So in order for your account to be reconciled, in order for every transaction to be accounted for, it requires death. So uh, kind of as a stopgap, there was this sacrificial system where they would sacrifice the animals. That way there, there is a sort of death taking place to account for your sins. But it became pretty obvious that something else needed to happen. 
Because it was just this cycle of sin. I'll sin, I'll sacrifice an animal. I'll sin, I'll sacrifice an animal. And it was going on and on. Reconciliation was necessary. But the second thing we find is it was costly. The price of reconciliation was costly. And I'll go ahead and give you the third. Reconciliation was completely undeserved. I want you to see this in Romans chapter 5. I'm beginning in verse 6. It's Paul writing again, and he says, At just the right time, when we were still powerless. Now, powerless to do what? Powerless to fix it ourselves. Powerless to reconcile it ourselves. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if we... Uh, this part right here, pay attention. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled. When were we reconciled to God? While we were enemies with Him, we were reconciled to Him. While we were enemies with God, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more, having been, been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Church, that is the grace of God. I love singing about the grace of God. This is all about the grace of God. You did not earn it. Yet He did it. The price He paid for your reconciliation to bring peace between you and the Father God. It was necessary. It was costly. And you did not earn it, church. It was undeserved. But the Bible says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. What's that joy? He made it right. It was His joy to make it right. And the Bible says it was the Father's joy to crush Him because it was making it right. It was so important to the heart of God to make things right. And now we need to walk in that reality that it has been made right. You have been reconciled to God. I want you to see the results here of reconciliation in Colossians chapter 1. Paul writes, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And I want to say that just one more time. Holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. There are two things I want you to see here. The reconciliation that took place in the death of Christ when peace was made between you and God. That does not mean that you're a big bag of sin, but God overlooks it. It means there was a transformation that took place in your life. And because of that reconciliation, you are now holy in His sight. You are without blemish in His sight, and you are free from accusation. Do you know what it means to walk in the grace of God? To live in the grace of God? Because we look at that and what we recognize is God doesn't see us the way that we see us. 
If you are in Christ, he sees you without blemish. To walk in his grace and live in his grace means to begin seeing yourself that way. To, be, to begin seeing yourself in the reality that you are without blemish. That you are holy and made perfect in his sight. That is walking and living in the grace of God. The second thing I want you to see here if I can find my place, is where this transaction took place, where the reconciliation took place. You can actually put uh, Colossians 1.22 back on the screen. He says, uh, now he has reconciled you to Christ. How? Through the death of Christ. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. And that is how you are presented holy. Now, full disclosure here, if I didn't know Jesus... And someone told me, hey, the relationship between God and man has been broken. A reconciliation of divine proportions is necessary. We're talking about a supernatural uh, reconciliation. It has to happen. And it's going to cost a lot. And as a part of this reconciliation, it's going to be completely undeserved on the side of the ones who created the offense. And not only that, but it's going to be transformational. This reconciliation is going to completely change the ones who made the, uh, the offense. It's going to change their lives so that they are then holy and without blemish. I would say that is impossible. Apart from Christ, that is simply impossible. But as Jesus hung on the cross... Do you remember what the Bible says? He cried out with a loud voice. That and it is finished. Another, another translation would say, it is complete. And many people have different opinions on what that means. There are probably lots of answers, but I can almost guarantee you this is one of them. There is this reconciliation that has to take place. It's necessary, and it has to be on a supernatural scale. And Jesus gives his life on the cross, and he says, It is finished. The reconciliation has been completed. There are different tenses in the, uh, in the Greek language. There's an incomplete tense or an imperfect tense, which means to keep on doing it. When Jesus said, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it'll be open. The tense he used means to keep on asking. If you're praying for something, keep on asking, keep on asking. But then there's the perfect tense. The perfect tense means it was only done one time, needs to never be repeated again. Only done one time and has eternal ramifications. When Jesus on the cross yelled out those words, it is finished. He used the perfect tense, meaning this never needs repeated again. This one-time event covers all of eternity. It has been completed. The relationship between God and man has been mended for you and I to walk in it. So when Charles Wesley writes these words and he says, God and sinners reconciled church it is a song of celebration and praise and worship 
Now, the last point that I have for reconciliation is reconciliation was accomplished. It was necessary. It was costly. It was undeserved. It was transformational. And it was accomplished. Now, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us specifically, uh, as does Colossians, that this took place on the cross. So why is it in a Christmas song that is about the birth of Christ? Is this a mistake that he made? No, it's because the moment that he stepped into to humanity, the moment that God became man, was the first step to the cross. Jesus didn't step onto the earth and one day decide, I think I'll go to the cross. Jesus stepped down from heaven as a first step to the cross. That first step that he made onto this earth, he knew the cross was coming. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Renee, could you come? Now, Paul says one more thing. Well, he says many things, but one more thing that I'm going to say about reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 19, it says, And now he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Jesus goes through all of this in his life, all of the pain, being stabbed in the back and, and being beaten and put on a cross. As he hangs on the cross, he yells, it is finished. It's been completed. The reconciliation, that transaction has now taken place. And then he ascends into heaven and Paul comes along and says, now he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That means that this message that I'm preaching in this church should never stay in this church. It does not say that he has committed to the pastors the message of reconciliation. Paul is writing to the entire church and he is saying, I'm putting this in your hands. Jesus has placed this message in your hands. That's why it's called the good news church, the good news of Jesus Christ, that that relationship that has been broken has been mended. We don't deserve it. It's been mended. Can you stand with me? Close your eyes if you would. God, I pray that this morning we would begin to see ourselves how you see us, God. That we are holy in your sight. That we are without blemish. Not by our own work, but yours, God, we've been made perfect. I pray that we would walk in your grace and that we would live in that grace. And God, out of, out of thanksgiving and, and appreciation, we would live 
a sanctified life for you, Lord. I thank you that the relationship between us and you has been mended by Christ. And I pray that we would begin to take advantage of that, God. Church, there was a day where if you wanted access to God, you went through someone else. I remember as a, as a kid, if we wanted to go swimming at our neighbor's house, we called our neighbors over to the fence and we said, we want to go swimming. Go ask your parents to ask our parents to ask us if we want to go swimming. There was a time in church history where this is like the relationship with God. You want to talk to God, you go through the high priest. But Jesus has brought restoration to your relationship with God. The veil was torn so that you can access God. And as Renee leads us in something, Access God. Maybe you're here and you, you, you're not taking advantage of the fact that you have direct access to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to the Alpha and Omega. You have His ear. This morning, as Renee leads us, take advantage of that church. Whether that is in thanksgiving, whether it's in intercession, whatever it looks like, I'm just asking you to take advantage of the fact that your broken relationship with God was mended. And as Renee leads us, connect with God this morning. Jesus, I pray we leave this place with just a renewed sense of nearness to you. Appreciation for the transaction that took place on the cross. vessels of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, don't forget uh, Angel Tree gifts next week. Uh, Christmas Eve service, 4 p.m. here. This year we're doing it on Christmas Eve. Okay? Nobody even laughed. Come on, church. That's funny. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.